Is my story valid enough to exist in something that shows up on bookshelves that you can check out from the library or listen on an audiobook? Welcome to You Should Write a Book About That. I'm your host, Kim O'Hara, a book coach with a story inside, and I am interviewing fascinating people from all walks of life with a story to tell. Do these folks have a best-selling book in them? Stick around and find out. I am so excited, as all of you know, to be back podcasting. And this month of December, I am launching with some amazing women that are making big changes out in the world. And today I'm so excited to talk to Tiffany Yu. She's the founder of Diversability, which is an award-winning community business that elevates disability pride through disability community, visibility, and engaged allyship. Tiffany, at the age of nine, was in a car accident and she lost the use of her arm. She also had her father die in one felt swoop. So the whole dynamic of her life changed her body and also her family structure. And then years later, through several evolutions, she created diversability. And today she's addressing the topics of sorrow and grief, as well as the PTSD that she never faced. It's wonderful to have you here today, Tiffany. Thanks for having me, Kim. So you have three significant turning points with your disability. And I thought maybe we would start with nine through 17. This was an interesting time for you of shame and medical ups and downs, right? Yeah. So I was involved in this car accident and from nine until 17, I think I just internalized a lot of messages that there was something wrong or broken with my body. And one of the things I think about with the car accident is you talk about the sorrow of just so many changes happening in that one fell swoop. And for me, it was also the loss of childhood innocence. I just lost autonomy of my body and my childhood, I guess Mm. I'll say. And I feel like I have a little bit of selective amnesia during that period of time. The car accident, my dad passing away. And the fact that now I had a visible disability were all really shameful and shameful within the family unit. So please don't tell anyone about it. Didn't tell anyone about the car accident. And I also told everyone my dad was away on a trip. Oh, wow. Then you're 21, you started diversability. So tell me a little bit about how you had looked at disability as an identity at that point. Yeah. So there were kind of like two things, I guess there were three really small things leading up until that point. The first was I had just finished an internship in investment banking. And the fascinating thing about that internship was every single week, not fascinating, but every single week you could meet with the recruiter, she would give you feedback. And this was the same recruiter who had been with me through all my college years. So she knew, she knew about my disability. And I remember I was having a really hard summer. I was just trying to like figure out this environment, my first, you know, professional experience. And I remember walking out and she had delivered some pretty constructive feedback about how my internship was going. And she said, Tiffany, I want you to know that you deserved your place here. You don't need to have a chip on your shoulder. That was kind of like point number one. Point number two is right after the summer internship, I had just come back from studying abroad in China. And up until this point, so I still hadn't really told anyone about the car accident. People knew about my arm, but I was uncomfortable and I made other people uncomfortable. So no one was really just talking about 
this elephant in the room, which is the fact that my hand looks different. And I had decided to apply for a Fulbright. And I was really interested in looking mm. at the intersection between the, the students who became physically disabled as a result of the Sichuan earthquake. And in China, one of the interesting oh, wow. things there is that in order to continue your education, they have a saying that you need to be physically well, like part of your part of how you can continue in your education is being physically well. But as a result of a earthquake, I became really curious what those students' outcomes would be in the future. Like, would they be not allowed to go to school because of something that was totally out of their control? And it was the first time I had really written about my own disability. The and power I remember, of writing, the power yeah. of writing it out. Wow. Oh yeah, the power of emotional expression. And I remember sharing the essay with one of my professors who was going to write one of my letters of recommendation. And he was like, Tiffany, when you first proposed this, I thought it was a little bit too controversial. But after reading your essay and your lived experience in this space, you are the best person to do this. So Amazing. I share the Fulbright, but I, I, I didn't get it. So I, you know, like that. Like, <laughs> but look what it led to. But look how it was the catalyst to opening you up. Yeah, to really and, just start to look at these narratives. Yeah, to, and to look at that intersection to say, hey, there is value in this experience that makes me the best person for this proposal, which ultimately led to point number three. Again, I'm 21 at this time. And I participated in a diversity training because I was a resident assistant, the person who oversees all the college drums, like the student leader. And, right. and we were asked to cut out slices of a pie based on how important different aspects for identity were to us. And there's something called like the big eight aspects of social identity. And that mm. can range from gender, sexual orientation, socioeconomic status, religion, um, and disability was one of them. And that was actually the big turning point between me viewing my disability as a medical diagnosis that had some treatment that my mom had continued to put me through to shifting to, wow, being a woman and being Taiwanese and being born in the US, those are all important to me just the same way as my disability is. I remember I came out of that experience really getting curious about what does it look like if you can see that I'm a woman presenting or you can see that I'm Asian and I have a visible disability. Like what happens when I wear all of those on my sleeve and instead of having shame and, and long sleeves all the time, I'm saying, yeah, my body's different. What questions do you have? Let's talk about uh, it. Right. And you're, this is you as the whole person versus yeah. that's like a bifurcated part of you, this like shameful limb, right? This shameful extension of you. Yeah. Wow. It's amazing how the paths, the different like curves in the path that lead us to ultimately like our destiny of where we're supposed to go out in the world and bring these greater lessons to people that are hiding. I, when we talked before this interview, something that really struck me, and I'm going to go a little bit in another direction here for a minute, and then we'll come back to the third age is that you said that there are people out there, you said 70% of the people out in the world today have disabilities that we don't even see. Right. So how are they being helped or how is their disability being validated? Is that something that you address at diversability? Yeah. I mean, I think that's why I, I lead by saying I not only have a paralyzed arm, but I also live with PTSD. And I think like, if I think about the name diversability, I chose that name because I wanted to show that not only is disability part of diversity, like that pie I just talked mm -hmm. about, but disability is also diverse. 
And one of the things I want to showcase is that disability doesn't just look like one thing. So one of the most common microaggressions we get is, oh, but you don't look disabled. And I, and, <laughs> And, 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 you know, you laugh, but I mean, right. this happens all the time. Or like, mm -hmm. I don't consider, even when I was working at the, at the bank, my colleagues came to me and they said, I don't consider you disabled when I would tell them, oh, I'm going to speak on this, you know, national disability employment month. Did that panel. make you angry? Did that make you angry? Did you feel anger in that moment? Like, who are you to tell me that I'm not disabled? Like, were you righteous about it for a little while? Did you go through that phase? Yeah. Great question. I think I just... Like for me, I, th I think I'm a little bit different from potential other, I don't know if you'd call them social justice advocates or, or people who kind of work in the diversity and inclusion space. I just want to get curious. Mm. So, so my response is, oh, like, what are you attributing to a disability experience that I don't fit? And use that as a conversation, right? So much of our work is, I want you to unlearn that disability equals bad. And instead, mm -hmm. disability equals human or disability equals neutral. And how can we have a conversation about my experience that makes it so that you don't walk away feeling sorry for me or feeling pity or viewing me as a, as a victim of my circumstance? Right. It sounds like what you were dealing with with those folks at the bank, too, was a level of ignorance. They just hadn't been educated. Right. So to go to the place of like asking them, what do you want to know or what are you curious about? Or let me tell you now they have the opportunity to be educated if they choose that opportunity. Great. If they don't, that's on them. It's such a fine line because I also don't want to put the onus on those of us who have oppressed identities to educate, but that's what my work is about, right? So, so some people will be okay, you know, opening up that conversation and other people won't, and that's okay, right? Because what I think about when people say, oh, but I don't consider you disabled or like, but you don't look disabled is what it does is it diminishes part of my experience that you just talked about, right? The compartmentalizing or the removing this like this disabled arm from, from my life experience. Like I can't just walk into a space and say, okay, disability, like I'm just going to leave you at the door, like Asian identity. I'm just going to leave that and show up at work. So yeah, it's really just like so much of what I'm getting curious about these days that transcends the work that I do in the disability spaces. How can we just acknowledge the validity of everyone's experience? Harm equals harm, right? I, right. I think there's a saying that says it's not about the intention, but about the impact. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. People, and like you said about the ignorance, like people aren't intentionally going out trying to offend me. But at the same time, when I get messages like that over and over and over again, I actually spent a, a long period of time before starting diversability if I was disabled enough to be doing this work. Let's talk about, so you took a little break from diversability and then around 26, it, it seemed like out of nowhere, people just started finding you like on Twitter and on social and kind of asking for this to come back. So 27, you were pushed back into it. And what's shifted since that new relaunch for you? Yeah, so such a great question. And I love that now you have these three, because I usually talk about the, the nine-year-old and then the 21-year-old, but I love this 26 to 27-year-old. So yes, so a lot of people started finding diversibilities work and once I started kind of reconnecting with the community again, meeting people trying to destigmatize mental illness, meeting people who were disability advocates, chronic illness advocates, I met the founder of a nonprofit called Stigma Fighters, which is around destigmatizing mental illness. And mm. I told her about the car accident and she came to me and she said, that car accident's trauma. And that was the first time that I actually labeled the car accident as trauma. I didn't 
that word trauma had never been in my vocabulary before. Wow. And then when I explained to her a couple other things that had happened about the way that I grew up and, and couldn't tell anyone about the car accident for 12 years, she was like, that's PTSD. And I had never heard that before either. And it was actually meeting her name, Sarah Fader. Shout out, Sarah. Uh, it was meeting <laughs> Sarah that I started to think, do I need to go to therapy? Like what other healing do I need? Needs to uh, be done yeah. right around this. Yeah. And so tell me about your sorrow in terms of when you started to go to therapy where did you feel that you were able to dive in fully or was there some resistance there for you a little bit? Mm. Can I mention the Frances Weller quote that says, the work of the mature person is to carry grief in one hand and gratitude in the other and to be stretched large by them. How much sorrow can I hold? That's how much gratitude I can give. So 26, 27 started to really explore like, okay, is this car accident trauma? What does PTSD actually look like? Is that, is that what I have? Is that what I have been ex experiencing? And I think what I learned about all of this is I always viewed this entire narrative through a disability centered and a disability forward lens. Like mm. my body became disabled. And what I realized is that, you know, you talk about sorrow, this whole thing is about grief. Yeah. It's really a story about grief. I talk a lot about the car accident and my arm and now PTSD, but I had never really talked about my dad. Oh, and wow. That's a lot to process, right? From yes. when you were nine, there's so many layers we could talk about. There, that I mean, there's, there are so many layers. So 2018, 2019, if you think about it, I had at 21, I had started diversity. So I was starting to get more comfortable with talking about the car accident, disability stories, the diversity of them, validating them. Then, you know, third around age, like 30 ish, then I'm like, let me explore what it meant for me to lose my dad. I mean, losing a parent so early impacts all your relationships, uh, yeah, especially so when you're brain suddenly, so suddenly too, yeah. out of nowhere. Yeah. And I don't want to be dramatic, but I was also in the car. Like <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a lot. It's um, a lot. It's a lot of layers. So then I had that period of kind of exploring the grief of losing my dad. So I used to talk about, I used to call my grief a grief monster. And actually now I talk a lot about grief in terms of it being a gift. And mm -hmm. I have probably actually right before the beginning of the pandemic, I forgave my dad. And I remembered all of the gifts that he gave me. And one of the things that I channel a lot as an adult and trying to reclaim part of this loss of childhood innocence. It's like play is one of my, one of my like intentions. And my dad is the one who actually gave that to me. He loved being outside. He taught me how to ride a bike. Like we were always going on different adventures. And after he passed, my mom had to work all the time. So, so there wasn't, that, there wasn't that much. There wasn't play. a lot of play. Right. Right. Um, what do you, what's your favorite ways to play right now? So biking. I relearned how to ride a bike in Amsterdam five years ago, and now I'm on a journey to get my own bike, and I'm going to name it after my dad, Stanley. It's going to be my bike. Oh, that's great. Are you going to like go on like a bike road trip? Do you have aspirations to do, you know, a bike race or how, I, well, how, how far away? <laughs> this is, you notice how I all automatically take it to an ambitious endeavor and you're like, it's play. <laughs> it's play. Well, I, I have a 
I have a reach goal or a bucket list to complete a sprint triathlon. So I think it's about half the length of a, of a usual one. And I know Ironman and, and some of these other organizations have adaptive versions, adaptive programs mm-hmm. where they help athletes train. So it will probably take me a long time and swimming and being in water is still a growth area for me, but we just manifested it on this podcast. We I, did. We did. And <laughs> let me ask you this, this poke the bear question too. Are you going to race as someone disabled? I am. Okay. I am. Yeah. I was just I mean, curious because you, 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 you could or you could or couldn't. Yeah, that just be. I, a, it could be. I, I mean, is it? Are, are there different races for? I mean, do you have to I, register differently? <laughs> I, yeah, I, I think that there's. I, I think that's a great question, and I will say, up until I started this work, I never, I never self-identified. Mm-hmm. I think there's a stat out there that about thirty percent of employees are disabled, but only three point two percent disclose. God, and, and I, low. and I want to model, I, I think I just want to model and, and, you know, it's, it's interesting because I have all of these experiences working in the corporate world, but it wasn't really up until, you know, you named it the 26, 27 age timeframe that I started being really loud and proud about my disability. Like, please don't erase it. Like I'm successful living with my disability or because of it, not despite of, or in spite, like, like. It's part of me. And, you know, it's interesting. I, I reconnected with a, uh, a nonprofit that focuses specifically on my injury. It's called a brachial plexus injury. And this is a lifelong injury. So no matter how many nerve reconstructive surgeries you do, like my arm is going to be, is, is paralyzed. And I think that when people look at me and they say, oh, you know, are you going to compete in the non-disabled or the disabled category? I have a life, I have a lifelong injury. And I think I'm still growing into that because I spent a long time being like, oh, well, I could technically X, Y, Z, X, Y, Z. Right. And, and if you look mm-hmm. at the definition of it, it was a couple of days ago, I have a friend who has uh, some autoimmune conditions that impacts what they can, what they can and can't eat. And I invited them to be my plus one on uh, at an event. And, and there was a buffet And after the event, uh, my friend told me, he said, I couldn't eat anything at the event. And he was like, I've never considered what I have a disability. And I said, you literally couldn't eat anything at the event. When you have to ask- That's a quality of life problem (laughs) is what that is, right? Even more, and a disability, yeah. Yeah, well, well, for me, it's like, if I have to, like, if you have to ask for permission to show up in a place- that, that is a disability because it's impacting the way that you interact with an environment, right? So for right. me and the type of bike I ride, technically I can ride a two-wheeled bike, but I prefer to have a back pedal brake or you need to transfer the brake over to the left-hand side. So even just transferring the handbrake over to the left-hand side is like, there's something it's different that it's needs to happen. It's making an bike. accommodation. It's making an accommodation. Well, I know you're going to do it. I, I we're, We are manifesting it right now. And the other thing we need to manifest is you writing your book. And so I know that someone's on you right now to get you to do a proposal or write the book. What What are you fearing? What's holding you back? Yeah. So earlier this year, I did have a literary agent reach out to me with interest in me having write a book. And I, such a good question. And I, and I know you and I talked a little bit about the fear. I think it's the imposter syndrome of who's going to care. Mm-hmm. It's the, I think what is coming up is so much of my work is validating our disability stories 
And I'm noticing myself being like, like, is my story valid enough to exist in something that shows up on bookshelves that you can check out from the library or listen on an audiobook, right? So yeah, a lot of things are coming up. I I have been sitting on this proposal, which is maybe about 50% complete, maybe less. We're just going to say 50 for the first 50%. Okay. <laughs> and and I and I started in March and we're in November when as we're right. recording this. What's coming up for me? So Kim, how you and I got connected is I gave a talk called The Power of Exclusion. And so much of where I see, I call her nine-year-old Tiffany, where she felt so excluded, where she felt invisible, invalidated. Like I'm feeling some of those things come up again in terms of your what story. This book. Yeah. Your story and the exposure to your, I mean, just in this short time today that we've been talking, you've already covered so many aspects of your book that would be expanded into chapters. I mean, I've already heard such a substantial book that's not on the shelves right now. And so it's really just tapping into really who that audience is, who we have been talking about on this call and all those people, those 3.5% that aren't identifying the people that are, you know, curious or have friends that are disabled and don't know how to, you know, behave around them. But it's also like your story through grief and shame. That's also another layer. And so I see a fascinating book and can, like can I, I share, said, yeah, go ahead. I, 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 just, I, I know we only have a short amount of time together, but um, within the past week alone, I got a Facebook message and I met up with a, a different friend for lunch. And the Facebook message said, Tiffany, I really want to thank you for the work that you do at Diversability. It's made me realize that not only do I have non-visible disabilities, but my sons do as well. And you're encouraging me to really take ownership in them. And then the friend that I grabbed lunch with earlier this week said, Tiffany, because I follow you, I don't feel shame about my PTSD and I want to feel empowered. And oh. I, I think that we, I call it like we weaponize disability. Like we say, oh, you're disabled. Ha ha ha. Or like, oh, I want to, uh, I want to embarrass you by telling people about your disability or your mental illness. And I'm just like, oh, okay, there you go. Like, what, what's so shameful and what are you embarrassing me about? Like, this is something that I live with. So hearing stories like that makes me just realize the power of story um, yeah. and, and modeling. And, and, and I used to call it like a permission slip. I, like, I felt like I had all of these different age points, as you mentioned, of getting these permission slips that like, hey, Tiffany, it's okay to share a story. Even the literary agent, like, hey, Tiffany, here's a permission slip. But what that permission slip actually is, is it's empowerment in action. I was yeah. like, why am I calling it a permission slip? It, this is what empowerment is, is people are saying, I have some power, I'm putting my hand out and, or I have some visibility and I'm putting my hand out and I'm saying, it's okay for you to, I want to pull you up with me. The bottom line is of all the people that are reaching out to you and that'll increase as the universe is, continues to nudge you. I mean, now that we've met and now that we've talked, I mean, I don't reach out to that many people, to be honest. I saw you and I was like, we need to talk. She needs to write her book. This needs to happen. So I'm like the holy nudge to you, right? Now other people are going to start to say it. And the truth of the matter is that you have to face is you are the one. You're the one that needs to write this book, you know, and you're being validated by people saying, please do it. Like you have it in you. You have the power of the words to help a lot of people. There's only so many people you can reach one-on-one -on -one and giving talks from the stage. You need to reach hundreds of thousands of people globally. And mm. the best way to do that is, is with a book. So I'm going to keep my eye on you as is the listening audience. To I see know I'm, I'm a future, I'm a future Kim client. <laughs> 
exactly. I, I, also, I also just manifested that. <laughs> exactly. So we've got the bike, we've got the bike race, we've got the book, and we've got you coming back and working with me. Well, it's been such a pleasure talking to you today. I thank you so much to your busy schedule for coming out and, and, and sharing your story. Of course. Thanks for having me on. You've been listening to You Should Write a Book About That. If you enjoyed our episode, tell a friend to listen, subscribe or review on iTunes, Stitcher, CastBox, Spotify, and Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts.